0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef. Pasture raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch Grass-Fed Beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch Grass-Fed Beef, the authentic flavor of the American West.
1: Hi, this is Severin, this is Greenhorns Radio, and I'm happy to be joined today on the phone for this radio show by Greg who has just won an award called Growing Green from the National Resource Defense Council for his work in the skills of Florida with the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. Welcome to the show, Greg. Thank
2: you, Seven. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing good. It's, it's pretty hot here, but I don't dare complain. I know it's much hotter where you are.
2: It is It is kind of ridiculously hot, and about a month earlier than it should be. Um, we're all kind of a little bit concerned about that, frankly, but, uh, yeah, it's 96 and getting hotter down here. I'm
1: sure it's a nice dry heat with a pleasant little wind.
2: <laughs> have you been to Florida? lately? <laughs> no, it's quite humid. Uh, no, it's a, it's a pretty oppressive kind of heat down here. Uh, no, it doesn't rain nearly enough. There's always uh, you know water in the air. There's always humidity in the air, and so it's a very even by nine o'clock in the morning, you feel like you're breathing some kind of thin soup when you go outside. But uh, but you know those are the conditions that people also have to work outside, and and it's it's pretty pretty difficult.
1: So. No. Many of us have begun to hear about the Immokalee workers based on the work that you have been doing to get the story out, but catch us up. As you look out over the landscape uh, of of Immokalee, Florida, what's the predominant land use, what's the predominant agricultural industry, uh, what's going down over there?
2: Well, you know, Florida is uh, the second largest state in the country for agricultural production on a number of uh, fruits and vegetables. And, you know, and for the tomato industry, it's actually the first. It's the largest fresh tomato producer in the United States, and that's the, that's the crop that dominates the area around Mockley, Florida, which is southwest Florida, Florida where we're based. So if you're familiar or your listeners are familiar with the state of Florida, Fort so Myers and Naples are on the southwest Gulf Coast. If you drew a sort of isosceles triangle um, inmore, inland, about 40 miles from either of those two cities, you'd land on Immokalee. And uh, you know, Immokalee itself is a town that really didn't exist about 50 years ago, but as as, as agriculture started to take on this modern, um, large-scale, plantation-scale production that that you see today down here, um, Immokalee came into being, because they needed people to work in the fields, and those people needed a place to live, and that's how, that's how the city, town where we live, was born.
1: And so how did you walk into this scene, this uh, tomato scene, what, what, what brought you there?
2: Uh me directly as a person I came down to work with a uh, a thing called legal services for farm workers, which is a um a federal program to provide people, you know, poor, poor people generally, but farm workers in my case, with legal representation when they when they need it. And as you can imagine, um farm workers are in need of legal representation a lot. Uh so when I came down it was the early nineties, but at the same time that I came down, and I, I had worked previously in Haiti, um, in the countryside of Haiti, with a um, movement for development and economic um, change there. And at the same time that I came to Makli, there was the second large um, boat people, uh, arrival of people from Haiti following the overthrow of President R.S.D. there. And in this case, it was a abundance second in the second wave of people from Haiti or refugees from Haiti. There were a lot of young people who were involved politically in, in, in the uh, movement for democracy in Haiti, and who had these tremendous organizing skills. And they were living in democracy by the day, and work you know just to find a way to survive, a place to work. Um, but as we started to notice that so many people were around, and I had even saw people that I knew from Haiti, all of a sudden they in democracy. The That presented an opportunity for the the kind of organizing that they had done, that we had done previously in Haiti, to be done here, and that was sort of the birth of the uh, the
1: CIW. So the organization of farm workers is uh, a marvel, Uh, even when they aren't organizing against uh, the conditions which they suffer to give us the cheap prices that we pay. They are organizing themselves with calling cards and wiring money across thousands of miles uh, where they may or may not speak the native language and where there is usually not very good public transportation. Um, mm-hmm. Could you just speak a little bit about this kind of marvel uh, of the underground agricultural uh, labor uh, force in this country and what, what people may not consider really initially, but as a, as a huge logistics triumph?
2: Right. Well it's kind of made up of two parts. One is one is the landscape that they find themselves in, right? And then the second part is is the tools they bring to be able to navigate that landscape. And I think, you know, the first part is that where people who come to work in this country to work in the field, uh or to find a way to survive and, and to support their families back home when they come here, what they find is they pretty much have an entry into the very toughest, very worst paid, very least protected most dangerous back-breaking jobs that we have in this country. You know, one one of the things that you... The labor market never lies, right? And so the moves of people in the labor market indicate, you know, what what is a bad job and what's a better job. So way people move from, from one job to another shows you which is, which is preferable. And there's really no flow inside the country into tomato picking. It's all out. You know, there's nobody sitting in another job today Daydreaming about the day that they can finally get their bucket and go work picking tomatoes. Um, on the contrary, everybody in tomatoes is daydreaming about the day they can go do something else, whether to go work in landscaping or in, in a restaurant or somewhere where there's a roof over their head, You know, and any kind of job, but 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 working in the fields. So that's what people find when they first get here. And like you said, it's 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 a logistic marvel to see how people are able to survive i mean the 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 best way to understand how difficult this is just imagine yourself going to somewhere in rural China with agricultural an agricultural community with jobs that you've never done before, and that you don't speak the language and you know you don't know if people are going to be hostile or friendly to you, and you're pretty much alone, you know. And you have to find a way to get by, establish yourself, and then, and then from that established position, support everybody back home who has their hopes and dreams on you. And you know, for the most part, people find a way to do that. The, what what is the tragedy is when the system doesn't allow people to actually find their footing, you know, and that's when you have people who are being. Having their wages stolen, you know, systematically, or or women who are constantly being um, facing sexual harassment in the fields, which is which is still fairly endemic, or even in the worst cases, uh, people who are forced to work against their will by employers who hold them and don't allow them to leave or to change jobs, and use violence or threats of violence to to keep them there. Um, those 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 situations still exist. The, the kind of modern day slavery I just described is is the extreme, but um, as Senator Bernie Sanders said, you know, the extreme is slavery, but the norm is a disaster. And so it's, it's you know, trying to navigate those conditions and trying to move ahead in life when, those are the, when that's the current running against you is is extremely difficult. And one of the things we're trying to do is to slow that current, you know, through the Fair Food Program. We're trying to change those things so that wage theft is not a, a regular part of, of the world as a farm worker. So the sexual harassment is, is you know, is case by case, complaint by complaint, eliminated until it no longer happens. Um, you know, so the slavery is gone, right off the map. You know, that this needs to be modern day slavery needs to stop. Um and we're starting to see real, real results. And we're starting to see people's lives changed. So there is a food program been organizing together, farm workers have um found a way to, to, to move forward as a as a as a whole, as opposed to each person trying to find their way by themselves.
1: Well, and so, of course, the, the benefit to society of ensuring a fair working environment for those at the very bottom of the socioeconomic ladder and those who are most desperate and willing to work on these kinds of jobs uh, is, when we have such terrible conditions, it's a disservice to all of us, and particularly for those of us who are in farming. Um, this is a radio show uh, for young farmers many of whom understand very much this doggedness that's necessary to survive in agriculture, although mm-hmm. not to the extreme of people uh, that you're working with, but, you know, we, are, we see directly the impact that these terrible conditions and these uh, slavery wages uh, are having on the price of food and the expectation of cheap, of cheap exactly. food and cheap labor, so it impacts us directly. Um, what have been some of the strategies when, you're, when you're, you're saying that people are coming into tomato picking and as soon as they possibly can afford to, they are leaving? How are you able to organize with that kind of a community, and, and what have been some of these strategies you've used?
2: Well, that, that's a great question, a very, a very um, technical sort of organizer's question, and I'll get to that. I wanted to mention, you're right, you know, in terms of benefits, the Fair Food Program doesn't just benefit Farm workers, you know, obviously the, the initial, the, the primary goal of the sort of food program is to help raise wages and humanize working conditions, right? But by doing that, you also help modernize the Florida tomato industry. And the Florida tomato industry is facing real, you know, a battle to the death with, with foreign production, especially coming from Mexico and from Canada. And, and price has always been, the one weapon used in that battle. Well, in this case, finally, the idea of, of providing a better product, not just a cheaper product, but a product that's fairer and more sustainable, is, is, is in, the, in the arsenal of the, of the growers from Florida. And it's giving them a strategy to be able to survive in this increasingly difficult global market. And for the, the retailers, you know, it, it's also an advantage because when they, can, when they have a product in the shelf that they can say, you know, hey, this is, this is a different tomato. This tomato was picked by people who are treated fairly. Um, And that provides them something new to to sell to the customers. And the customers, of course, given the opportunity to understand the conditions behind the food that they buy, they almost invariably choose to support better, fairer produce, more sustainable produce. In fact, there was a poll that just came out that the W.K. Kellogg Foundation released this past week that showed that 88% of the people polled. Would pay it, it was a dollar fifty more per month if that would help raise farmers' wages by fifty percent across the board, and eighty eight percent of of consumers said yes, we would. So that so it's a benefit for everybody. Uh, in terms of, of of strategies for organizing and how how you work in a community that is so transient and is is not a community really at all in the traditional sense. It's more like a a labor reserve. You know the, the places in South Africa, the the, the diamond mines. That you have these towns that are made up of almost entirely of young men who have come to to find their fortune in the diamond mines, and they live, you know, they live in conditions nobody would accept normally, except that they're in a place where they think that if they if they deal with these conditions long enough, they might get lucky and might move ahead. Right. Well, that's essentially Amakli and all the pharmacists. Towns that are dotted across the map of Florida it, they're places where people don't know each other they've been there a very short time, they hope to be there even even less time and you know it's just a, it's mainly young men who are not traveling with their families um, because it's very difficult to support a family when the other people are not producing an income right you have to pay rent and buy food for everybody, but no one else is, is producing an income so it's Young men who are transient and hoping to get out, and so that is one of the most challenging environments to organize. And the way we've done it is by emphasizing critical analysis through what's called an approach developed in Latin America called popular popular education, which is um, a form of education that's that's really it's very powerful and it's very useful in, in communities where literacy is not as, as high as it is here in the United States. And where people use things like drawings or theater or songs to critically analyze the problem in their lives and try to determine what the roots are. And so in this case, you know, a lot of the problem is why are we as farm workers so poor, right? So we'll use theater, we'll use drawing, whatever, and and these community meetings, and people will be able, through reflection on the, on the, the drawing, say, be able to discuss the why's, the roots behind farmer poverty, and from there, from that understanding, that consciousness, be able to develop plans of action to try to change it. So for us, the the, the our motto, our central organizing motto, has always been consciousness plus commitment equals change, and the whole thing begins with consciousness.
1: Wow. This is good stuff. No wonder you're winning awards. now, And no wonder you're making progress in the very belly. I mean, you're choosing the hardest place to, in the whole food system to work. And, and, and then you're getting some serious success. Do you feel like this is the place that you continue to, to want to work? This is the place that uh, is a right leverage point for these conversations? Um, how, do you, how do you see the next few years playing out uh, in terms of uh, labor, lab, labor treatment and labor rights and the prices that are paid?
2: Right. Um, well, you know, the, this is a tremendously um, successful um, <laughs> approach that we've been taking. It's taken a long time to get here. Don't, don't get me wrong in that sense. We started back in the early 90s. And you know, we had to make mistakes first. We had to ask a whole bunch of wrong questions first, until we finally found the right uh, the right questions and, and the right path. Um, and even then, it's been you know ten years of, of just un, unremitting struggle to get ourselves to where we are today, where we have ten multi billion dollar food companies that are supporting the Fair Food Program. And the Fair Food Program is is being implemented today in over 90% of the tomato farms in Florida. So we are at a place where we can say that what we've done in the past has worked, right? But now we're at the place where we have to be very, very careful to make sure that what we're doing now actually gets established, institutionalized, and works, right? So, you know, we've been having some really exciting results over the first season, season and a half, of implementation of the Fair Food Program and the Fair Food Code of Conduct. You know, complaints of sexual harassment that have been quickly and effectively uh, investigated and led to, to quick actions to change, to take harassers out of the scene, out of the picture, and, and bring more education about sexual harassment to the workers in the field, and where people, where workers themselves have said, this is a great result, you know. That kind of thing has happened over and over again, but it but it's still very young. And so for us to be, to be sure that what we have done is really going to stick against, you know, decades of history of abuse with no answer, um, we have a lot of work to do, you know, and, and, and that work is just it's the, the building of the, of the enforcement mechanism behind the, the code of conduct. It's the day-to-day education work on the farm, on the clock, that we're doing with workers so that they know their rights and can be their own agents of enforcement, you know, and can, can use the complaint process to make sure that the, the bad actors are identified and removed. Um, and when we do that often enough that it becomes clear to the people who used to, used to take abuse as a given and that there was no consequence for abuse when it happened in the past, when those people start to believe that doing something wrong will result in their losing business or being fired... Then the abuse will stop, and then we might be able to say that what we've done in, in, in tomatoes has been a, a real success.
1: Now, I don't want to uh, ask too much of the people that you represent, but do you think that there is possibility that we um, would see more passageway made for farm workers into the roles of farm owners and operators and Leasers of land, and eventually, perhaps even owners of land and owners of farms in the United States, is it unfair to ask that of farm workers to that they would want that, or is that a viable <laughs> place to look for more farmers? Since that's something <laughs> that the a Nation well, clearly need?
2: Well, you know, it's it's an interesting question because you had mentioned earlier that you know that, that small farmers are facing a lot of the same price pressures that are driving the exploitation of farm workers, right? And, and that's exactly correct. I mean, when we finally figured out ourselves that, that it's the, the consolidation at the top of the food market that is driving this constant downward pressure on prices, and that downward pressure on prices is translated into downward pressure on wages for farm workers, that's when we finally decided that, you know, if we go and we protest in front of Taco Bell in Los Angeles we'll be able to raise wages and improve conditions in the But there's a lot of work to be done still so. and mean, we've just in our tiny corner of the world we've started to establish this this idea that the company that is at the top of the retail market need to actually increase the price that's that penny more per pound, you know, increase the price they pay so that they can start to undo some of the damage they've done at the bottom of the supply chain. Right? That idea if that idea really takes hold and if sustainable food starts Starts from a premise of a sustainable price, right? And instead of the instead of the changes that are that are being asked by the retailers of their suppliers to to you know grow more organic or to meet all these standards and or to pay a living wage, and putting all the costs of doing those things on the supplier as opposed to the retailer helping helping cover some of that cost, then it's still going to be very difficult. Whether it's somebody who's been a third generation farmer here in the country or a, or an immigrant farm worker hoping to to farm a small piece of land him or herself to get ahead, and right? so if what we really need to do together, you know and small and we do we have a lot of, of very good coalitions with national farming family farm coalition and the family farm defenders, you know we work closely with them on on trying to build alliances also between small farmers. And farm workers, because really, what makes small farm workers poor, or makes small farmers poor, is what makes farm workers poor too. And we're trying to change that altogether. And if that happens, then yeah, I think you know, farm workers would have a good chance. Because I mean, farm workers were farmers, most of them, many of them, were farmers back home. You know, and and they'd love the chance to be able to use more than just their arms and legs to work. You know.
1: Well, that's something, that's something I'm interested to explore more is where are the opportunities for entrepreneurship and collaboration and, and also, a, um, you know, a, a mixing of the roles where we've seen, you know, we've seen which people are getting to do which, which roles. And, and especially since we, many of us are white kids coming from urban backgrounds and starting our careers as unpaid interns, sometimes mm-hmm. replacing farm laborers who would um, maybe work harder. In fact, definitely work harder and better than we do, especially in our first years. But uh, we, most of us are starting out at the very bottom of the labor chain, and we don't walk in at the management level. And so we're very aware as we then move into um, more management roles that we are ourselves, of the work that we are asking from from our workers. And I, I see that as a very positive and democratizing uh, role that apprenticeship plays in training mm-hmm. of new farmers here, but I, I know very very clearly that, it's, you know, even at the explosive rate that we see new people starting to have interest in agriculture and apprenticeship all over the country growing and beginning farmer programs growing, um, we just don't have enough uh, we don't have enough people <laughs> for all these jobs uh, that are that are that are needed, especially when you talk about sustainable and organic production, which of course is more labor intensive. Uh, would you briefly reflect a little bit outside of your state some of the recent things that I've been reading about uh, in the state of Georgia uh, and Alabama where uh, in fact there has been a direct a response in the labor market to um, rules that penalize uh, immigrants and farm workers
2: mm-hmm.
1: by allowing discriminatory um, police, what's it called, profiling?
2: Right.
1: And Ma'am. essentially, you, you know the story better than me, so maybe I'll just let you take over. What happened uh, down there in okay. Alabama and Georgia?
2: I actually know it very well from personal experience. Um, you know, I, I, for the past fifteen years, I've been doing, I've been harvesting watermelons in the summertime, right? And so, for the past twelve years or so, Tifton, Georgia, which is in in Southeast Georgia, is has been my home away from home for three four weeks every summer during the watermelon season, right? So, you know, we go up there and we stay in the sort of watermelon worker hotels that are around town, and then we'd go out and we'd work until the, the season was over, then we'd move up to Missouri or over to Delaware. Um, and last year, we went up there. And our 1st we, we knew that there was going to be a, a massive difference on the ground when we got there. But our first indication was when we got to the hotel where we've always stayed, there were just a ton of rooms open, and there was hardly anybody staying in the, in the hotel. That was the first thing. And then, when we went out that evening to try to find a job, you know, we we found a job within an hour, and you know, there, there was somebody just just dying a a crew leader just dying to have somebody who knows how to how to pack melons and in semis, which we which I know how to do, and so we, it was very easy to walk into a job. There was nobody staying at the hotel, but the big surprise, or not surprise, but the most obvious sort of measure of of the destructive idea, destructive consequences of this idea was, well, you know, the next day when we started working, the, there was this, within a couple hours, there was a pile, a mountain of of ruined melons in the packing house, right? Because they had tried to replace the people who usually work in the packing house, people unloading and working on the line, with young people from town, young people from around Tispen. And they didn't know what they were doing, and they were playing all the time, and they were breaking melons right and left. There was just this huge waste of melons. It was two or three times a day you had to haul trucks of wasted melons out of, the, out, of the thing, out of the packing house. And then inside the trailers, the 18-wheelers where we were working, the people who had taken the melons off the conveyor belt and thrown them to us as we were packing, usually that's a job that you train somebody one time at the beginning of the season, and they work with you as the, as the, people, the passers of the melons for the whole season. Well, we couldn't get a pair of people to stay inside the trailers with us where it's hotter and about 120 degrees inside from more than one single trailer. So we had to train people every single time we did a trailer. And I came home with bruises on my body that I'd never had before in watermelons, from getting hit with melons when I wasn't ready, when getting hit with melons thrown all over the place. It was, it was like it was like Lord of the Flies or something. You know, or, you know the, the kids had taken over and they had no idea what they were doing, and it was anarchy. And this is an industry that has always been run, like clockwork, by the mm-hmm. immigrant workers who know how to do the job. And the whole problem came from the idea, which has always been a problem here in the South in particular, of the, of the undervaluation of agricultural labor. The assumption that you can just replace people who are professional, skilled workers in a job like watermelons, which is a skilled job, if anybody's ever done it, they know what I'm talking about, if they're not, I can tell you why but the idea that you could just replace an entire workforce of skilled laborers with just anybody off the street is based on the idea that that labor is not actually valuable, when in fact it's only been paid at a low value, but it is incredibly valuable to the system to get, to get watermelons from the field to the plate. And so you saw this, this, this juncture between the belief that has always justified paying workers such a low wage and the reality of when you take those workers out of the picture and so you try to replace them with people who don't know how to do the job, the food doesn't get to the plate. And there was apparently billions of dollars of, of, of melons and peaches and other things left in the field in Georgia last year that didn't get to the plate. And we have a pretty remarkable system for getting food out of our fields to everybody across the country and across the world and it broke down last year because the people who are paid to do that and who are professional farm workers were not allowed to do it because of this you know, wrong headed and racist idea about immigration. So, yeah, I, could, I can talk more about it if you want, but there's, I mean, that's, that's the answer to your question. You know, it really comes back to this idea that ever since slavery, people have believed that farm labor is not valuable, and it is.
1: It's valuable, and and the and the proficiency, and the and the muscle memory, and the wisdom, and the savvy, and the stamina of the farm workers that I've worked with, and who are working all over right now in the heat, uh, is incredible, and a testament to mm-hmm. their hope that in America, that America would be a place of opportunity. My question that I just. Keep having is how can we in the young farmers community express our solidarity, and and how might we be allies uh, from from the place that we're occupying in the food system to those that you're working with?
2: Right. Well, you know, the very first thing is just to learn more about it, and you know, we have a website that is full of information, Some would say over full, but it's got a lot of information all about our. The history of our of our organizing, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of videos that are really informative. There's um, the, the basic, you know, the Fair Food Campaign 101, kind of the basic ideas and principles of the Fair Food Campaign. So you can just go to CIW, and that's the initials, CIW, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, hyphen online.org, CIW hyphen online.org, and get all kinds of information, and all kinds of ways you can take action to help us. Um, And then, you know, we agree that the idea is not really supporting what we're doing, but building alliances, becoming allies, because we really are both facing the same pressures. Young farmers who want to get involved and stay involved in the business and, and make a living in the business, and farm workers who are trying to improve wages and working conditions, we absolutely have the same forces that are keeping us poor and that we need to work together to change. So it's not just a question of supporting the stuff that we're doing, but it's actually getting in contact and building bridges so we can work together to change the system and change those forces to allow people to survive at the bottom of the whole food chain.
1: I'm in. I'm all in. We can talk oh, about right. it all year. So this yeah, has okay. been uh, a wonderful interview and a great privilege for me to be able to speak with you. Uh, we also are members of the National Family Farm Coalition and Family Farm Defenders. Um, it's a really great privilege to be uh, in a community of farm advocates who care so much and who work in such, such a many, many different ways uh, to, to, to make change happen. Greg Ashton just won the NRDC's Growing Green Award for his work as co-founder of the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. And they are, again, as I'm sure you got in the beginning, they're based in Immokalee, Florida, and working predominantly with uh, tomato pickers. A really wonderful book to read, if you're just tuning into this issue, um, is Tomato Land by Barry Estherbrook. So I thank you, Greg, for your time. Uh, and Thank for joining you so us. much, and I, I look forward to to the future that you made possible.
2: No, absolutely. Thank you for the time too, and um, let's let's keep in touch. And same for your listeners.
1: All, right, all the best. Bye bye.
2: Okay. Bye bye.
0: Thanks
1: for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network.